Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Um, our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service is both on our printed orders of service and on the screen. As usual, please stay if you can and have some tea or coffee at the end of this service. Thank you, Anne. So we're sticking with the prophet Isaiah for our call to worship again this morning and some words from Isaiah chapter 11. Out of the stump of David's family, the root of Jesse, a shoot will grow. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. So just invite those who are going to help us to light our candles to come forward. Boys, are you coming forward? Because we kind of need you. So we're going to start with the words that are printed on the sheets and then Elham will read us, lead us through our dedicated readings for today and then there are some more words on the sheet and on the screen. With those who are poor, we believe in life before death. With those who have nowhere to lay their head, we believe in life before death. With those who cannot rely on governments of the world community to help them, we believe in life before death. The prophet Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They lived in a land of shadow, but now light is shining on them. We light, we light the second candle on our advent ring to remember all God's prophets of old people who told that through about that through about what was going on in the world and stood up for people who were very poor people who believed in God's prom uh, promises even when everything seemed hopeless people who said what they believed to be true even when they were afraid we light our candle because we to refuse to give up hope, and that hope is stronger than anything in the world. In our watching and our waiting, come, come Lord Jesus. In our hopes and in our fears, come, come Lord Jesus. In our homes and in our world, come, come Lord Jesus.
And so we're going to come to God in prayer. And of course, as is custom and practice, we will enjoy listening to each other's voices and languages when we reach the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together. God of mystery, in the beginning, before time began, you spoke a word and creation sprang into being. In the beginning, when everything was chaotic, your wisdom inaugurated order. In the beginning, when history began, word and wisdom together brought forth all things. God of community, through all of history, you have given us families and communities in which to flourish. Through all of history, you have been part of our story, sharing our everyday lives and struggles. Through all of history, in all of life, word and wisdom together bring forth new things. God of Advent, in this time, you meet us in our brokenness and sinfulness. In this time, you forgive what is wrong and restore what is good and life-giving. In this time, in this place, word and wisdom together enable us to grow in love and in truth. Mysterious, communal, adventurous God, active within and among us today, Accept our praises and hear our voices as we share the words Jesus taught his followers, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Let the skies 
So who's been decorating their houses? Who's, been, who's got their Christmas trees up? Few people. Um, who's got Christmas cards up? Few people. Um, what else might you have? Who's got a wreath on the door? Or few people, yeah? Lots of different things that we do to mark Christmas. And lots of things we do to get our houses ready to celebrate. But I'm wondering... Do we ever think about where they come from? Do we just do them because we always do them? Hi, Casper. Do we just like put a wreath up because we always put a wreath up? So I thought it might be just interesting to look at some pictures <coughs> this morning and see what we, what we can remember. I, I did all my research and then I didn't write it down and I've got a brain like a sieve. I have a, a book at home that was one of the first theology books I had to read and it was called... Europe, Was It Ever Really Christian? by a man called Anton Vessels. It was very dull, but it was really interestingly dull because it talked all about all these customs and how they actually predate Christianity by a long, long, long time. So holly grows in the winter and it's red and it's bright and it feeds the birds. And we'll come back to see how that's found its way into our thinking a bit later on. Who likes a nice warm fire in the winter? Anybody got a real fire in their house? It's a shame, isn't it? Who's ever heard of a Yule log? Yeah, okay. Does anybody know where the Yule logs come from? Scandinavia? Scandinavia and Germany, Austria. North, yes, Northern Europe. Um, and actually our own, our own country as well. They're very much Northern European. In fact... Most of the Christmas customs we have are Northern European or Scandinavian in origin. <coughs> so imagine it's winter and it's dark and it's cold. And you haven't got electric lights because they haven't been invented and you haven't got candles either. So you go out and you drag into your hut or your house the biggest log you can find and you put it in the hearth and you light it. And you keep that log ablaze all through the dark nights, all through the solstice, the shortest day of the year. And as the light starts to creep back, you celebrate the rebirth, the redawning of the sun. And you keep your log ablaze as long as you can. And then you let it go out and you keep a little bit and you put it away in the cupboard. And next year... When you drag in your new log, you use your old log as a starter to light your new log. <coughs> Some of us now have chocolate logs, don't we? Yeah? I quite like a chocolate log myself. And the origin of the chocolate log is actually the Yule log. So that lovely idea of bringing warmth and light into our houses in a dark time of year, that's kind of a bit of prefiguring of Jesus, I think, isn't it? Light in the darkness. Who likes a bit of mistletoe? <laughs> Anne likes a bit of mistletoe. <laughs> what do we do with mistletoe? Are we all too shy to say? <laughs> Kiss under the mistletoe, don't you? Or avoid being kissed under the mistletoe. When, when I was a teenager, if there was ever mistletoe, I was like, keep away. But mistletoe is one of these things that grows and, and the berries come in the winter and it's really good for some of the wildlife. But people used to bring it into their house to ward off evil. And the same was true with Holly. They would bring it in to scare away evil spirits. And if you think it was a dark time and, and people didn't have understanding of, of the science behind the weather and stuff, anything you could do that seemed to bring a bit of brightness and hope into your house. So you'd hang this up. Um, mistletoe was also a sign of friendship. And somewhere along the line, it kind of morphed into this thing where you like you have to kiss the person you really don't like under the mistletoe when you try to avoid people or not maybe you like being kissed under the mistletoe 
Who has a Christmas tree? Most people, if it's not up yet, has one eventually. Did anybody hear the hoo-ha about the beautiful Christmas tree that we get from Norway? It was terrible, wasn't it? It's a beautiful tree. Every year, the people of Norway send us a tree as a thank you for what we did for them in times past. And people have looked at this wonderful gift and been very rude about it and said it's a bit spindly. It's not the most luscious tree ever. How rude. So the tree that the Norwegians give us is a very precious gift. Bringing trees into the house goes back way, way before Christian times, and there are all sorts of different stories about why it was done. Perhaps the most famous one is the legend of St Boniface, who saw people going to chop down an oak tree um, as part of their midwinter sacrifices, and as they chopped down the oak tree, behind it was a little fir tree. And then people started to bring the fir trees into the house and we decorate them with candles or lights or baubles. Um, some people put on tinsel. Apparently the tinsel is supposed to be a bit like the spider's web. The story of the, the myth of the story about how when Jesus was hiding, the spider made a bit like the Robert the Bruce story. Robert the Bruce and Jesus, you know, hey, hid in a cave. <laughs> spiders made a web, couldn't find Jesus, couldn't find Robert the Bruce. That apparently is where we get our tinsel from. So all sorts of different customs we have, all sorts of things to brighten up our houses, and they go back before Christian times, they do. But this idea of the light that can't be put out, that's a very Christian theme. The warmth, the community, the, the love, the protection, the, the wanting something to protect us from evil, these are all themes that are just as real for us today as they were for people in, in times gone by. So this week, I'm going to give you a bauble to take home. And I've chosen red because holly berries are red. And um, we'll start that way, and if you can pass them up your side and along to the Mac, and Yang Yang, if you can do the same. And once we've cleared the choir with um, baubles, we will start the music for our, our next song. It's a very beautiful song. It's called the Sands Day Carol. Oh, San Day Carol. I tried to find out anything about Saint Day, who it's named after, and there appears to be nothing other than that he was a Breton saint and that he is remembered in Cornwall. That's where he comes from. And this particular carol talks about the holly and how that comes in. There was enough for everybody, so don't feel you have to just have one per household. Um, so we'll remain seated, and what you'll find is also there's a little bit of music in between the verses, which is, is rather lovely. Thank you.
first from the Psalm 119. <coughs> How can a young man keep his life pure? By obeying your commands. With all my heart I try to serve you. <coughs> keep me from disobeying your commandments. I keep your law in my heart so that I will not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your ways. I will repeat aloud all the laws you have given. I delight in following your commands more than in having great wealth. I study your instructions. I examine your teachings. I take pleasure in your laws, your commands, I will not forget. And the letter to the Romans, chapter 15. Everything written in the scriptures was written to teach us in order that we might have hope through the patience and encouragement which the scriptures give us. And may God, the source of patience and encouragement, enable you to have the same point of view among yourselves by following the example of Christ Jesus so that all of you together may praise with one voice the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then for the glory of God as Christ has accepted you. For I tell you that Christ's life of service was on behalf of the Jews to show that God is faithful to make his promises to their ancestors come true and to enable even the Gentiles to praise God for his mercy. <coughs> As the scripture says, and so I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to you. Again it says, rejoice Gentiles with God's people. And again, praise the Lord all Gentiles Praise him, all peoples. And again, Isaiah says, A descendant of Jesse will appear. He will come to rule the Gentiles, and they will put their hope in him. May God, the source of hope, fill you with all joy and peace by means of your faith in him, so that your hope will continue to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit. And from the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, 
Before the world was created, the Word already existed. He was with God and he was the same as God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. Through him, God made all things. Not one thing in all creation was made without him. The Word was the source of life, and this life brought light to mankind. The Word became a human being, and full of grace and truth, lived among us. We saw his glory, the glory which he received as the Father's only Son. Back in the 1970s, when I first started to attend church regularly, the second Sunday in Advent was often kept as Bible Sunday, a day on which we focused especially on the gift of the Bible as a special book for people who were trying to follow Jesus. Somewhere along the line, and I've, despite trying quite hard, I've not managed to track out quite when or why, it was moved to October and the Bible societies are very keen that we mark it in October. Maybe it was moved to October because that was a better time for them to fundraise. Maybe that's just a bit cynical. But Baptists and other, as children of the various Reformation movements across Europe, have always placed a really strong emphasis on the Bible and allied with that on preaching. Whereas the older traditions, the Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican traditions, and to some degree even the Church of Scotland, Presbyterian tradition at that point, had a centre on the Eucharist and therefore an altar at the centre of their churches. The thing that you would see would be the altar. For Protestant nonconformists, it was the pulpit that stood proudly centre stage, and upon it would be often a very large Bible from which the scriptures were read in the language of the people, something that then was quite a new thing. And after it had been read, a sermon, or sometimes several sermons, would follow. All through history, Christians have debated the status of this holy book and sometimes have made claims for the Bible it doesn't make for itself. The language of inspiration by God leads for some people to questions about authority or infallibility, whilst for others, those internal inconsistencies you find if you set different books of the Bible against each other raise questions of historicity and reliability. So lots of different ways in which people have understood the Bible over time. And I'm conscious among us, we have all sorts of different histories and all sorts of experiences, and we will have different understandings and views on how we see this book. But one thing is definitely clear, and one of the things that Baptists are a bit prone to bang on about, is that it's, as followers of Jesus, we take the Bible very seriously. It is not our highest authority, though, 
As Baptists, we locate that authority with Jesus. The Declaration of Principle, which holds Baptists together all across the world and in this land, says that Jesus Christ, God made flesh, is our authority. Of course, the Bible points us to Jesus. It's our best way of learning about Jesus, but it isn't Jesus. It is Jesus who is our authority, not the scriptures. We're going to do three things today. It's been one of those weeks when I kind of had lots of ideas and lots of phone calls and and writing a sermon got done in a bit of a rush. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story that I first told you a couple of years back. Some of you will remember it, some of you won't, and that's fine. I want very briefly to look at some insights from literary theory, which some people will find interesting and some people will have a little doze. That is also fine. And then lastly, a very quick look at the readings that we heard today, most of which are the set readings for this day, though I did cheat and change the gospel reading because I thought the John one probably fitted better. So a story. In the beginning, people sat around fires and told stories, recited poems and sang songs. Grandparents remembered, children learned, and the story of God was passed on and on and on, down through the generations. The time came when there were so many stories to tell and so many songs to sing that people started to record them. Learned men, and it was men back then, would carefully copy the words onto special scrolls, which were treasured for the stories they contained. By the time Jesus lived, many scrolls of these stories and songs had been collected, and they had been translated from Hebrew into Greek. Synagogues had their own copies of the scrolls, Boys would go to school where they would learn to read, and it was a real honour to be invited to read from the scroll on a Sabbath. (coughs) Jesus told lots of stories, and he taught many things. People came to listen to him, and they would go home and tell their family and friends what it was that they'd heard. Most people, of course, couldn't read, and hardly anyone could write, So the only way to keep the stories alive was to sit around the fire and tell them, just as their ancestors had done before them. As the stories of Jesus spread far and wide, a missionary called Paul began to send letters to the believers in the places he visited. These letters were read out to everyone who was there and then put away very safely. But what they loved best was to retell the stories of Jesus. As time passed, the people who had met Jesus grew old. And other people realized that the stories could so easily be lost. So they started to collect the stories and write them down. And four collections of these stories were especially treasured. We nowadays call these the Gospels. Time passed and the church grew and spread. A couple of hundred years went by and people started to wonder, out of all the books and letters, which were the important ones? The ones that told the story of God in and through the life of Jesus. There were a lot of disagreements, but eventually they decided which ones they wanted to include in the Bible. For hundreds of years, Bibles were written in Latin and hidden away in monasteries. Monks would carefully copy out the words, adding beautiful patterns and pictures. But still most people couldn't read and didn't understand Latin, so they had no idea what the priest was reading to them. And sadly, they most probably didn't get to see the pictures either. Over many centuries, people began to translate the Bible into their own language, including several on our own island. 
About 500 years after the time of Jesus, Cademan was a monk in Whitby Abbey in Yorkshire. And he used songs in the, his own language to share the stories of Jesus. Around the same time, another monk called Bede carefully translated the whole of John's gospel from Latin into his own language. Then, King Alfred of Wessex, inspired by his wife Judith, translated parts of the Bible into Anglo-Saxon. It was around a thousand years after the books of the Bible were agreed that one of the most famous Bible translators of all time, John Wycliffe, translated the whole Bible into English as it was then spoken. And all of it was written out by hand. Suddenly, things changed with an exciting new invention, the printing press. This meant it was possible to produce lots of copies of the Bible very quickly. For the first time ever, ordinary people could own a Bible. William Tyndale was the first person to publish an English-language New Testament, but he had to flee to Antwerp to do so because the authorities didn't want people to have their own Bibles. And when the first copies arrived by ship, they were seized at the quayside and set on fire as soon as they arrived. Not deterred, Tyndale had smaller copies made which could be hidden inside sacks of flour. Maybe he was the first Bible smuggler. Soon afterwards, Miles Coverdale produced the Great Bible, which was authorised for use in churches. He travelled to Geneva, where the pocket-sized Geneva Bible was produced and was used by many early Baptists. James VI started to think there were too many different versions of the Bible in use, and what actually was needed was one good translation for everybody to use. So the authorised version of the Bible was produced in 1611, and used almost exclusively in the English-speaking world for about 300 years. But in the last 100 years or so, all sorts of different versions of the Bible in English have been published. I think King James would have been horrified. This was totally not what he wanted. We have children's Bible stories books that tell the tales for a new generation. And that's before we even start to think how many different languages the Bible societies have now translated the scriptures into. And as the story continues, another technical um, revolution has arisen. There's Bible software on computers, tablets, and smartphones. Braille and sign language open up the scriptures to new groups of people. Access to the ancient stories becomes easier and easier. Here's the mystery. Stories only come alive when people read or hear them or watch them, when they sing the songs and when they pass them on to a new generation. So a story. Now some theory. In Hebrews we are told... The word of God is alive and active. It's a verse that very often gets quoted. I'd like to suggest that insights from communication theory and literary theory can help us to think about what it means to say the word of God is alive and active. Over many years, I have worked several times um, and come across this model to help us think about how communication works that somebody has a message they want to send to somebody else. And what they have to do is to code that message and transmit that message, and the other person has to receive it and decode it. We do that subconsciously, but I'm coding my thoughts, if you like, into words. I'm saying them through my voice. You're receiving them through your ears. Your minds are decoding them, and then you do whatever you do with them. So that's one of the theories about, about how we receive and pass on information. We all know, of course, that um, sometimes you get the Chinese whispers effect on what the person sends isn't quite 
what you end up with. When I was studying theology, one of my favourite parts of the biblical studies, which probably says I'm most a bit weird, was the literary theory. How, how we understand literature can be something we bring to how we understand the Bible. And it's a similar idea, really, to the, the communication model, that there is a real person who writes something and a real reader who reads it. These are two real people. But there's kind of a whole fuzzy area in between. And if we read a book, we can build up a picture of who they're writing for, the implied reader or the ideal reader. We can build up a picture of the writer who we never have met. When, when we read novels or, or books, we start to think what the person is like. So this is a model that's used for all kinds of literature, not, not sacred literature, it's a secular model. Of course, for us as Christians, there is this mysterious extra element of God's spirit. Where does God's spirit act in this? Because the Bible wasn't dictated, it wasn't whispered into somebody's ear, it was written down collecting stories that had been told over many, many years, centuries, hundreds of centuries sometimes. But we believe that God's spirit inspired the people that wrote them down. And that even though we can never meet those real people and we will never know for certain their names, we as the real readers are also inspired by God's spirit. God's spirit helps us to understand and interpret those scriptures. So what does that mean? What does any of that mean? Well, because I'm a good Baptist and because I like the Baptist Declaration of Principle, I go on to another bit in it that reminds us that each local community of believers is free at liberty, in the formal words, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to interpret and administer Christ's laws. In other words, you don't have to understand any of that theory. You don't have to have done a theology degree. All of us together, as we listen, as we reflect, as we read, God's Spirit works in us and helps us to understand what we read and tease out the truths that are true for us. Ah, truth. Pilate wondered about that, didn't he? And in post-modernity, which is apparently where we are now, the idea of big truth, the meta-narrative, absolute truth, is not very fashionable. So are there timeless truths? Are there things that aren't just kind of woolly and I'm my truth or your truth? And can we find hints of those in the Bible? I think the answer is yes. But I think they're at the level of principles and themes, not absolute thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do the other. So I'm going to share very briefly, because time is running away from me, a few thoughts on the readings that we heard read for us this morning. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's a, a very complicated acrostic poem reflecting on the law. And the little extract we heard is directed towards those who are young, young people. But its message is just as true, whatever age we are. And it's actually a very upbeat little section, um, if, you, if you look at it. The writer finds joy and delight in living out what they've learned from pondering the things of God. So it's not a case of, I have learned great wraths of scripture by heart. I know every memory verse. I don't remember any memory verses, but the writer's not saying, I, know, I remember every memory verse I ever learned. But actually, I've got a deep knowledge of the truths of a God who is love and whose followers are to love each other as God loves them. That's the truth, the law that is hidden in the writer's heart. And I wonder how that compares with how we feel about reading the Bible. I wonder when you or I last felt really excited to read the Bible. No, I thought not. Let's be honest, it doesn't always seem the most exciting book, does it? But when did we last discover something new about ourselves or about God? Or 
What are the stories, the verses, the ideas that we have within us that we can draw on when times are hard, when we're scared, when we're sick, when things are going wrong? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shelter. Various things, even if we can't remember them verse by verse, word for word, they're in us. And that's part of what the psalmist is saying. Let's soak ourselves in these these important words and phrases that we can carry with us into life. And then there was a little extract from the letter to the church in Rome. Now, I have to confess, it wasn't a passage I knew very well. um, And it did actually excite me. But it's rather lovely. And Romans isn't all very lovely, but this bit is. And it says, the purpose of the scriptures is to encourage us, to give us hope. And then it comes, ends, the little section we read has this lovely little prayer that's aimed at whoever reads the book. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful image, to overflow with hope? Isn't that something that perhaps is useful to hear today? Hope, joy, peace and love are very often cited as Advent themes. And here, in this little extract from the letter to the church in Rome, we're reminded of them. And then lastly, John chapter 1. That wonderful, mysterious, and yet almost incomprehensibly simple passage. Very interestingly, I was talking to a friend who is giving this passage to a person in her church who has Down syndrome. And they will read it because there are no big words in it. And it never really struck me. But there is this beautiful simplicity and incredible complexity held together in this poetry. And the essential truth that contains is it actually wasn't enough for God to use words. And not enough that the words that told the story of God and God's people had been recorded and passed on from generation to generation. Not enough that people had learned them and put them in their hearts. But actually, God became a living, breathing human being and lived among us. It has been said by cynics that the word became flesh and dwelled among us and the church has turned it back into words. That we've lost sight of the heart of the gospel and have made it all about rules and rituals and I guess there probably is some truth in that. But this is Advent. This is the time when we enter that ancient yearning for Messiah to come. And these words, however they've reached us and however we understand them, point us to the Christ who redeems all things, renews all things, recreates all things. Can we dare we tweak the words of the psalmist and say that we have God's living word, even Christ's spirit hidden in our hearts, teaching us how to love, transforming us ever more into the divine likeness and sustaining us in all seasons of human experience. The word of God made flesh in Jesus the Christ, is alive and active. And we glimpse something of that as we engage with and reflect upon the book of books we call the Bible. And so we sing... 
Open this book that we may see your word embodied in the drama of our earth. sisters, let us pray. Dear Creator God and Parent of us all, I bring you prayers for our world and for those with me in this place at this time. When planning these prayers, it struck me I must often seem to you like a right wee moaning mini, always gurning on about current problems and asking you to set them right in an instant. It made me pause and feel very humble, wondering how I can say anything new to you, how dare speak to you at all. But then a good friend asked me to look at the meaning of Advent and gain inspiration there. So here I go, Lord. Bear with me, please. Advent is a time of pilgrimage when we walk together towards the great day of rejoicing in which we celebrate the birth of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. A time of renewed hope and optimism. So, with that in mind, I pray that the coming election has a workable outcome which will facilitate getting rid of the millstone around our necks. Oh yes, I am talking about the B word. Resolving the time and effort absorbing problem of Brexit or de-Brexit or whatever and thus allow the government to get on with their real work. Reconciling the divisions which have arisen between our peoples in these aisles, building necessary social housing, increasing social care so that the necessity of food banks become a memory, diverting more funds towards the health service, increasing funding for the care of the elderly and the education of the ambitious young, and restoring a sense of worth to many of the other youngsters in our society who feel themselves marginalised, disenfranchised on the scrap heap of life and use violence to proclaim they exist. And that's just a start. I could go in for hours, but I won't. 
I pray that in the coming months we no longer look at our politicians and say, in weary frustration, what a shower, what an absolute shower. Let us face next year's advent standing on solid ground and not shifting sands. Oh, day of God, draw near and bring us longed for justice and peace for everyone, not just in our country, but all over the world. This I pray. Here, in our own small community, I pray that you smile fondly on all of us, but in particular I name our dear friends Aeson and Annis and Edith Fleming. May this Christmas be a time of joy and peace. I pray your warmth and comfort for those living alone and for those recently bereaved. May they be comforted by loving memories of happy times. I pray for the sick, afraid of what may come. Great healer, be with them and allay their fears. I pray for our fellow Baptist churches in Stromness, Thurso and Tillicoutry. May they be strengthened in the work of serving their communities and telling out the glorious news of your abiding love. Now I say again, O day of God, draw near and give us joy in the knowledge that at this time of Advent, we go forward ever nearer to your promised future of a new earth and a new heaven where there is a home for all, justice for all, equality for all, where there is no hunger, no tears, all wrapped up in the gift of a child born in humble circumstances who, when he grew up, made the ultimate sacrifice of his life so that her sins might be forgiven and we be cleansed to stand in the throng of believers when the day of God dawns with the light which first blazed out at the creation of our world. May our eyes, blinkered with so many worries, see the promise of that light, and may we strive with renewed hope to make us worthy of its shining down upon us. O day of God, draw near, and for those who suffer in this world, please make it soon. Amen.
loving God accept these our gifts and with them ourselves that all may be employed for the extension of your jurisdiction of love, peace, hope and joy. Amen. And so we sing, O day of God, draw near. God, Sophia, Spirit, Wisdom, inspire us. May God's Christ, Cosmic Word, inform us. May God's eternal present tense transform our everyday lives with love, peace, hope and joy. This Advent, today and every new day.